Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to The Ezra Klein Show. My guest this week is Cecile Richards, the president of Planned Parenthood. This is obviously a timely interview. Planned Parenthood is a very, very hot political topic right now. Republicans are obviously trying to defund it. And in this conversation, we go very deep into what that means because I don't think it means what people think it does. There's not, as she explains, a Planned Parenthood line item in the budget. You can't just wipe it out of the budget and then it goes away. That what is being discussed here is whether or not Planned Parenthood can get federal reimbursement for non-abortion services, whether a woman can go to a Planned Parenthood, get a cancer screening, and the federal government pays Medicaid back for that healthcare procedure. We talk a lot about that. We talk about her background as a labor organizer. She gives some principles for organizing that, that I have not heard before and that I thought were really, really fascinating and worth thinking about in a lot of non-political contexts as well. We talk about her mother, Ann Richards, who is the former governor of Texas. We discuss abortion as an, as an issue more broadly in American life and, and particularly some of the changes that have come in, into the issue in recent years. We're now at one of the lowest levels of abortions on record since Roe, uh, less than a million in 2014, and how that is or is not changing the conversation. So this is a, it's a fascinating conversation around a set of topics that are often difficult to talk about in American life. They are, they are things people sometimes are uncomfortable discussing, which is why I think they are important to discuss and why I think it's important to try to think about these things a little bit outside of just the context of immediate politics and to think about them in terms of what are the actual goals people are trying to seek? How do people actually feel, not just when they come into the ballot box, but more broadly in their own lives? Cecile Richards is obviously very, very thoughtful on these issues. She represents one side of the debate, but it's an important side of the debate. And so I think there's a lot of value here in the conversation. So here, here's a point where I usually ask you to promote the podcast, listen to the weeds, that kind of thing. I still hope you do all that, but a, a different plug this week. We are having our second Vox conference. It is an unconference. It is going to gather 150, 200 people who are knowledgeable about policy, who have fascinating things to say about the world, who want to be in a discussion about policy in the Trump era. We're going to hold it at about the 100-day mark of Donald Trump's presidency in D.C., and we are accepting applications to come. So if you would like to come, if you think you have a perspective that should be heard, there are going to be really, really fascinating people at it. I had a great time at the first one, and we had a lot of listeners of this show, which was just an awesome thing to see, too. So it was really meaningful to me to meet a lot of you there. The applications are open. There are conversations Conversations.vox.com. Again, conversations.vox.com. Go check it out. I think it's something a lot of you would be interested in. So again, that is conversations.vox.com to apply to come to Vox's second unconference, this one on policy in the Trump era. That said, without further ado, here's Cecile Richards. Cecile Richards, thank you for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So one of the things I learned while looking into your biography for this was that you were a labor organizer right out of college. 
Right. Who were you organizing for? Well, I started working for the Garment Workers Union. I don't know if you remember, you're too young, Ezra, but the Garment Workers were sort of like a storied women's union. And there was a look for the union label. And anyway, so I was Mm -hmm. organizing on the Rio Grande border, women who sewed clothes for a living. But then I eventually went on. I moved to New Orleans and organized hotel workers for a long time, uh, low-income women who clean hotels, still do, for minimum wage. And then uh, I worked in organized nursing home workers, whole, basically... I worked organizing low-income women. How did you get into that line of work? So my dad, David Richards, who does not get quite as much attention as my mother, Ann Richards, was a labor lawyer. And so I grew up in Texas with the farm workers movement, with the labor movement, and understanding how important it was. And then actually when I went to college, I went far away from Texas, and there was a strike my freshman year of the janitors on campus. And I got involved in that, and I still feel passionately about uh, the fact that too many people in this country um, barely make a living wage. What were the principles of good organizing for you? What did you learn about organizing from that experience? To be a good organizer, you have to know how to listen to people and understand what their issues are. It's really interesting. I worked with so many women who were making minimum wage at a nursing home or working in a hotel. And when you actually talk to them about what they wanted, they had very few material desires. What they really wanted is to be respected on the job. And that was a big part of the organizing campaigns we did was really just gaining these women through their own leadership, dignity and respect in jobs that are very often looked down on. This will sound like an odd question, but something I think about a lot. Tell me about how to be a good listener. What did you learn about being a good listener? And what separates those who are and those who aren't? Well, I I mean, I think you have to fundamentally be interested in other people and want to learn about their stories. And I think actually just having the patience and frankly, even in the work I do today, my mom used to always say, people don't do things for your reasons. They do things for their reasons. And so if you can really understand where people are coming from, what motivates them, what their needs are, then I think you can be a good organizer and a good leader. Folks who think that that everybody's just waiting to hear from the leaders about what to do. And I think actually this is sort of interesting in this political moment we're in. That just doesn't work. And people vote with their feet. So I love that line that people do things for for their own reasons. It's interesting. I was reading The Art of the Deal over the weekend, uh, actually two weekends ago. Okay. Because I was writing a big piece about how big piece. I was writing a piece about how Donald Trump has not been as much of a deal maker as certainly I expected. And it's fascinating. He has this line in there where he says that you cannot get somebody to make a deal, and I'm paraphrasing, but you cannot get somebody to make a deal unless they ultimately see it as in their interest. Mm-hmm. And one thing that, that I like in what you're saying is that there's a real difference between trying to persuade somebody it is in their interest and trying to understand how it is in their interest. And that often feels to me in a, a place in politics that well-intentioned people fall into the gap. I think that's right. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I know after elections, a lot of times folks will say, well, I can't believe people are voting against their self-interest. And sometimes it may be that people didn't have all the information. I and mean, there's a whole host of reasons why people make the decisions. But I think it's somewhat somewhat misaligned to think that people are necessarily voting against their own self-interest. You may not actually know what their self-interest is. Well, and there's a, there's a fascinating, I don't quite want to call it a spiritual context, but mm-hmm. the, the thing that those 
voting against our self-interest ideas always seem to miss to me because typically I think people mean economics when they talk about that. that that's how liberals tend to mean it. Right. But people have a lot wrapped up in their identity. They have a lot wrapped up in their sense of place. They have a lot wrapped up, as you said a minute ago, feeling respected. I think something Trump specifically did very well was say to some people who felt disrespected that I respect you and soon everybody's going to respect you if we, right. if we win this crusade. And that politics of respect, that politics of dignity, it's one that does not always come naturally to folks and is often left out of their analyses. I agree. And I also would say the, the closer you get to Washington sometimes, the further away people are. And I remember I had a brief stint where I had the uh, real honor of working for Nancy Pelosi when she was going into the leadership. And I had never worked on the Hill before or it, with anyone in Congress. And just what struck me was how few people that worked on the Hill, and I don't mean this disrespectfully because there's some amazing people there who could do a lot of other things with their lives and they devote their time and energy to really making the world a better place. But uh, everyone who was elected to Congress came from somewhere else. And if we would spend more time with the folks who are back there, I think that Washington would be less out of touch and frankly would quit putting things in such hyper-partisan terms. Tell me what you learned working with Nancy Pelosi. She's a, she's a fascinating figure to me because mm -hmm. she is clearly one of the great legislative tacticians of our age. But her skills are very – they're very inside game. So I think that people often do not realize what she is good at. And sometimes it's, it's even hard for me to understand what she has done until I see the, the finished product. So I'm curious from somebody who's worked with her, what is she good at? Why, why did Nancy Pelosi rise up to be Speaker of the House? First of all, she's the hardest working person I've ever worked. And I've worked with some hardworking people, including my mom. And her attention to detail and attention to people is beyond anything I've ever seen. I would say the members of her caucus and even beyond, she knows them. She knows, she knows their families. She knows if their kids are in grade school. She knows if their grandchildren are. She literally knows and understands and cares about people. And getting back to your original point, like people do things because they're motivated by their own reasons. And I feel like that as leader and the speaker, she was amazingly deft at understanding that and paying attention to those kinds of details. And look, she got she got where she is strictly on her own, like a lot of women. It's not like someone came and tapped her and said, OK, now we're going to promote you up. She had to fight for it. And I, so I think she has a lot of natural skills and uh, knows what she had to do to get where she is. And and again, I think that's true with a lot of women, They because they had to do it all. There was no system that promoted you up. How does that relate into to your mother, Ann Richards? So Ann Richards, for those who don't know, was governor of Texas. Mm -hmm. What was she great at as a politician? I think one thing that, and she would say if she were still with us, People in Washington used to always get her to come and speak to like democratic things and say, just, can you just tell people how to talk to people? <laughs> and I think what mom would say is, you know, she, she always said, look, if my mother or my, my grandmother, but her mother back in Waco can't understand what you're saying, it's not working. And, you know, she grew up depression era family. Really, her parents never got out of high school hardworking people. And she had an ability to know what it's like to be in that that world. That was that was a large part of her growing up. And I think she could take, she would say, you know, $20 words and make them into something that people could actually understand. And she believes so passionately that government 
had such an influence on people's lives. And if you spoke about it in that way, not in terms of policy, but how it's actually impacting people's lives, you could really make change. Do you think Democrats have have lost the language of government, have lost the ability to talk about government? Not everyone. I mean, I don't think you can put it. Look, I think there's plenty of Republicans who've lost that, too. So I don't think it's a Democratic or, or Republican. It's part of their thing. ideology, right? I mean, they, they decide. The reason I focus this mm-hmm. one on Democrats is that I think actually Republicans have really figured out how to talk about government for their ends. I'm sure some have. And look, I'm not an expert on the parties and their their politics and where they've gone wrong or not. But I do think for anyone that the further you get away from the ground, the more you just lose lose touch. And it's so hackneyed to say it, but Washington is a place that can be incredibly insular. And I mean, it's been interesting to see the reaction of folks who are going back home now for recess and having to talk to hundreds, sometimes more than that, of their own constituents. And these are people who live in these communities and who are upset and who are trying to express that. And the fact that people wouldn't even go meet with their constituents says to me people have completely lost touch of even why they're in government. Could your mother be elected governor of the Texas of today? Hmm, That's a good question. I mean, it was sort of a miracle she got elected the first time, honestly. She was way too progressive, people felt like. But I do think Texas is, for us, it was like three days earlier, three days later, she probably would have lost that race for governor. But a lot of things kind of came into into focus and, and worked at the end. I would say right now, Texas is a much different state demographically. And I think there is a real future for a progressive candidate in a way that there wasn't even when she when she first ran. Unfortunately, uh, as you probably know, Ezra, Texas isn't really a red state or a blue state. It's kind of a non-voting state. And of course, the state legislature and the governors made that even more difficult. So I think if Texas began to actually vote in the numbers that other states do, absolutely she could get elected. Why, why do you think that is? What, is? what is your explanation for the somewhat unique political culture and unusual levels of political apathy you see in Texas? Well, I haven't lived there for a while, so I'm not I'm not an expert on that. But I will say one thing is a problem. And I mean, everything is because of the challenges that folks have in voting. But it doesn't take one time or twice going and trying to vote and being denied the right to vote. That pretty much kills it off for the rest of rest of eternity. And that's I think we really have to look at that as a country, what we do to discourage voting especially in early years. I think the other thing is it's become such a monolithic Republican state that it's hard for people to see that there's a chance to win. And that happens cycle after cycle. And then people just go, I don't know, like your question, like, well, I don't know who could win governor's race now. You know, when mom was elected, even though the state was moderate to conservative, Democrats were in county government all over this the state. So even in East Texas and West Texas, which are places now that are really challenging for Democrats, at least there you had county judges and county commissioners that were Democratic. And so there was at least a grassroots network of leadership around the, around the state that you don't have as much anymore. So how did you end up getting involved with Planned Parenthood and getting into leadership of that? Well, the way I got involved in Planned Parenthood is kind of like the way most women do, which is I went there for birth control when I was in college. In fact, one in five women in this country have been to Planned Parenthood at some point, And there's this enormous alumni association out there that I think we're seeing rise up right now. But 
later on, I had been running an organization called America Votes, which was a was and is a coalition of progressive organizations that were working to to work better together in terms of voter registration, voter turnout, voter um, communication. And this job came open at Planned Parenthood. And of course, it's an organization I'd always cared about, but it just seemed like such an incredible, it was an incredible organization, much the way the labor movement was to me. It's like, it actually makes such a difference in people's lives that they have an affinity for Planned Parenthood that transcends any other issue organization that I've ever seen. In fact, most women, if they've been to Planned Parenthood, they can tell you when. Uh, They remember exactly what was happening. And so there's a great loyalty to that. Uh, And I thought, boy, if we could make this organization not only the most important reproductive health care provider in the country, but also a force for electing people who supported good policy for reproductive health care, that could be really potent. One thing that's interesting, though, is that over the last, I'd say, 10 years, the, the political role played by Planned Parenthood has changed. It's become more of a flashpoint, more controversial. Why is that? Well, actually, I don't think that's true. But when I was hired, it was out of a concern by the organization that in state after state after state, women's access to reproductive health care was being eroded. And people realized it wasn't going to be enough just to be good at providing reproductive health care if women didn't have the rights anymore to come and get it. And so there was an intentional decision by the organization to build the movement side, which I feel like has always been an incredibly important part of the organization. And I guess if there's, um, if we become more of a flashpoint, it's because we become really active. I mean, we went from 3 million supporters 10 years ago to now uh, more than 10 million. And a lot of them are young people who this is kind of the first place they've become active in an issue uh, or set, you know, a, a movement. Before we go too deep into the Planned Parenthood and the politics of today, tell me a bit about the broader context around reproductive health and rights in the country right now. Because this is stuff where th- these are numbers where I think they cut in strange ways against the orientation of our political debate. Mm -hmm. And in particular, one of the things that is striking to me is that in 2014, we had, I think, our second lowest number of abortions on record, right? About a million or under a million. Mm -hmm. What is behind that drop? And how is or isn't it changing the discussion around this? Okay. So there's a lot of things you've asked there, but I'll, I'll just take one that I think is actually very exciting and important. I'll just speak about the last decade. One of the things that we fought for very hard uh, under the past, the, the previous administration of President Obama and the Affordable Care Act was actually trying to level the playing field for women's access to health care. And there were a number of things that happened. I mean, women no longer having to pay more for health insurance, the no more gender rating was one part of the Affordable Care Act and, you know, not being denied insurance coverage because of a pre-existing condition, et cetera, a lot of other things. But really, one of the most important and hard-fought battles was over birth control coverage. Now, because of the Affordable Care Act and the Essential Benefit Package, 55 million women in this country get birth control at no copay, which means, basically, you can get any kind of birth control, including the kind that works best for you, not just just what's cheapest. And at the same time, we're now seeing we're at a 30-year low for unintended pregnancy. We're at a historic all-time low for teenage pregnancy. Uh, As you say, we're actually at the lowest rate of abortion since Roe was decided. And these things are, I think, obviously go hand in hand. That is, to me, despite all the political sort of back and forth, that's what we should be really focused on as a country. And it is, I mean, it's exciting 
to feel like we have made this progress. It's obviously incredibly frustrating and depressing to think that women are now a political football again, potentially with this Congress, and we might erase all that progress. But that's huge in the public health community. But did, did pull apart some of what's what's behind that number. So the number that, that we are at about the lowest level of, of abortion since we began keeping post-war records, it, it's really striking. And what is behind it? One argument is that there have been a lot of state-level regulations passed that have made abortion harder to access, so perhaps that's it. Another is that it's been better reproductive health care. How, how do you see the evidence? Yeah, I think, and look, and of course, the studies have just come out, so I don't want to over, uh, or I certainly don't want to do an analysis here on the fly that we haven't we haven't gotten. Absolutely, there has been an impact on women's ability to access safe and legal abortion because of so many state restrictions. But at least from looking at the Guttmacher report, indications are that the overwhelming reason for a decline in the abortion rate has been that we've done better in terms of unintended pregnancy and birth control. I mean, the main reason women get pregnant when they don't want to be is because they're between birth control methods and they didn't or they couldn't afford it or they're only taking half their pills or a whole host of reasons that women get pregnant. And now the fact that I mean, we've also seen a commensurate rise in the use of long acting methods of contraception, for example, the IUD, which is now more common. We saw actually right after the election, a 900% increase in women trying to get into Planned Parenthood to get an IUD because it's very effective. It lasts a long time, but it's expensive up front. And so the Affordable Care Act coverage of that allowed women who may never have even thought of that as an option as something that they chose because they knew it would last for several years. I mean, and we're really proud, again, at Planned Parenthood of always being in the lead in the reproductive health community of introducing new and better methods for women. Because frankly, for too many years, we've had, you know, it's been kind of been birth control pills and that's it. This is a little wonky, but I know you're wonky, but we actually just did clinical trials on a self-injectable Depo-Provera, which would mean a young woman or any woman could use it and it's effective for three months. It's something that's been used globally, and it's ex very exciting to, to think that that might be another option for women domestically. I'm curious because the IUD piece of it, I've been struck by the cultural rise around, around mm -hmm. IUDs. I mean, just how much more you read about them, how much more they're spoken about. What, what has been behind that? Has that just been increasing availability and accessibility, or has it been a change in the science, or has it been um, campaigns among doctors? Why, why has that become – why has that changed so much in the last, I'd say, five years from what I saw in numbers? Um, well, I do think one is, I mean, I think there was definitely an era in which IUDs were not considered to be safe and there was a lot of bad history so that, you know, folks kind of almost a generation had to um, to uh, get through that. But absolutely, I mean, I can't say why if there's been marketing efforts um, by by the pharmaceutical industry. I don't know. I can't really speak to that. But it has because it's been covered now under insurance plans. It's huge. Again, the upfront cost may have been prohibitive for a woman, but over the years, it's an incredibly um, inexpensive and effective um, use. And I know for Planned Parenthood, again, we think we're like the largest family planning provider under the National Family Planning Program. We've really done a lot of work to also uh, train clinicians and make sure that that we have folks across the country where women can actually get this. Because it's not that you can just walk into any any doctor's office and get an IUD. And give me a sense now that we're on we're on this topic. What is the the scale of services Planned Parenthood provides, and where are they provided? Okay, so we provide healthcare to about two and a half million people every year, 
And we're in every single state. The only state we don't have a health center in is North Dakota. And then that's just because of its population density more than anything else. We do education there. And we provide a whole range of reproductive health care, everything from birth control, which we've talked about, to STI testing and treatment. In fact, 10% of our patients are young men who come in for testing and treatment maybe because it's either convenient or because it's non-judgmental. We do a ton of cancer screenings. For many women who come in for birth control, they can also get their pap smear, get their breast exam. We provide abortion services. And the other thing that we've been doing more of now and expanding is transgender care. In fact, I don't know that this is actually accurate, but I heard or read the other day in The Guardian, I believe, that um, the VA and Planned Parenthood are now the biggest providers in the in the country of transgender services. So so that's that's a good thing, too. How do you decide where to open a clinic? It's been really largely based on demand and population need. So half of our health centers are in medically underserved communities and a lot in a lot actually in smaller towns. It's sort of interesting. I was actually just in Michigan and uh, also in Wisconsin, those are states where we have a lot of health centers that grew up over the years as the National Family Planning Program started, again, long before my day. And health centers opened up in places where women just had never had access to reproductive health care. In fact, I was I was in, uh, well, we may get to this, but I was actually just in Speaker Ryan's district where we have three health centers, again, in smaller towns, Kenosha, Racine. One of the things that you guys have argued within within the debate around Planned Parenthood is that about half of your clinics are in are in rural or medically underserved areas. And and one of the things that was fascinating to me is that it implies that potentially both support and consequences around Planned Parenthood are, are not evenly distributed. And I think we saw a bit of that during the campaign where Donald Trump was surprisingly he was both pro-defunding, but also made a real point of defending a lot of the services Planned Parenthood provides on stage in, in debates with Republicans. What did you think was behind that? Trump seemed like an unusual – he seemed to have an unusual politics around Planned Parenthood. I'm curious if you're seeing evidence of that now that he's in office. Well, I don't know what motivated him, but I actually felt like it was an incredibly honest thing to say if the other candidates were actually thinking about – What's women's health experience in this country? I think they would have said a similar thing, which is everybody knows someone who's been to Planned Parenthood, you know, or their daughters or their wives or whatever. And I think what what uh, now President Trump was saying then was he knows a lot of people who've been to Planned Parenthood and got health care and it's a good place. And again, that's the irony is I for some reason, some of these folks running for office or in office, they think of Planned Parenthood as a political issue. And actually, the truth is. We're a healthcare provider, and women and men, but mainly women, come to Planned Parenthood, you know, not to make a political statement. They come because we provide affordable, high quality health care. And in a lot of areas, we're the only ones that do. And again, I think w- women's health in general in the in the healthcare world has been neglected. There's not enough of it. And again, it's really it, it really is discouraging to see how many politicians think of women's health as sort of more like a political football. And a lot of these rural areas, too, again, in Speaker Ryan's district, these three health centers, they provide only preventive health services, you know, family planning services, cancer screenings. I met with women who had had their cancer detected at that Planned Parenthood. And these are centers that are so much at risk because of what Congress is considering now. And that health care is at risk. And I know in one, Racine, there is no other 
community health center to provide family planning services to women in Racine. So one thing that you'll hear from Republican politicians on this is that if the broad suite of services Planned Parenthood provides are, are so important. And, and you'll see numbers, I think they're from Planned Parenthood, that only 3% of the services are actually abortions mm-hmm. as a percentage of total services, not uh, as right. a percentage of money. Why not just stop providing abortions? Why not take it out of this controversial political debate, make it something everybody can support and sort of just say this is going to be a place for cancer screenings, for for birth control, for reproductive health care, but but not this one part that so many people have such strong and so strong opinions about. Well, we believe really strongly that women should have the right to come and get all the health care access they need, no matter where they live, no matter what their income, no matter what their geography, and no matter, frankly, what their politicians in Congress think. And, you know, abortion is a right that women have had in this country for more than 40 years. And the overwhelming majority of people, I think now it's at 70%, support Roe versus Wade, support access to safe and legal abortion. And we believe it's as important as anything else that, that we do. Let me just also say, Ezra, in case there's anyone of your listening audience that doesn't know this, uh, federal funds do not pay for abortion services, except in very, very rare circumstances. And Planned Parenthood operates just like every hospital in America, other healthcare providers. And that is we get reimbursed for preventive health care through the Medicaid program. I don't know why they're picking on Planned Parenthood because we operate just like everybody else. It's really important. And I and frankly, that's what our patients and that what that's what the public believes that we should be doing. Before before we get into the funding side of this, because yeah, sure. we should we I want to dig into those, those details in a very real way. Okay. There is a lot of tension in how we talk about abortion itself. So uh, an example is that we we talked in, in this conversation, I've heard you say before, that there's a lot of pride in the fact that abortions are coming to be at their, their lowest rate in, in the post-Roe environment. And it seems that on the one hand, celebrating that feels like it makes intuitive sense. And on the other hand, it Im- suggests that getting an abortion potentially is a, a bad or a shameful thing, something we should be really trying to to have not happen. And I feel very much both sides of that. And I'm curious how you think of that if it is a tension, and if it is where it puts people, how to how to resolve it. The fact that we are able to reduce unintended pregnancy, and I would say teen pregnancy, which I think is just sort of a universally held value that you know helping teenagers prevent becoming pregnant until they're ready and they want to they want to actually be parents is a is a something that we as a country think is a good is a good thing. But I don't think that just reducing the number of abortions in general is something that is a goal. I think it just it just demonstrates to me that we actually have done a better job of reducing unintended pregnancy. In general, I would say the amount of shame and stigma that women in this country not only have faced for decades but still face around a whole host of issues including abortion but not only is enormous. And I do believe that we are making progress. I mean, more women are talking openly about having had an abortion, including myself. More magazines, you know, women's magazines are talking about women's real lived experiences. And when I first started Planned Parenthood, I would say so many women in their 70s or 80s would would be telling telling their children or even their grandchildren really at the end of their life, well, that they'd had an abortion back in the day, and sometimes women before it was legal. And now I find that women are actually telling their stories now openly. And that, to me, is just a beginning part of trying to end the stigma and shame. And of course, it makes it a lot harder when you have politicians in office or running for office that 
say things about women who've made decisions when you have people yelling outside of health centers at women. We have to end that. So Vox commissioned a, a polling series with Perry Undem, who does a lot of great mm-hmm. polling work on these issues. And one of the big answers out of that polling series was pro-life and pro-choice are way oversimplified for how yes. people actually feel about these issues. But something that was so striking to me in it was that, so best data we have, 25 to 35% of women have, had a, have had or will have an abortion in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And 61% of people think it's significantly lower than that. So we, right. we, we hugely <laughs> underestimate yes. the prevalence of, of abortion. But the thing that was striking in that was that the underestimation is much higher among higher income and more educated Americans, which probably reflects their mm-hmm. experience or could also reflect just social dimensions of it. But I'm curious what you think of when when you hear that, because it really seems to me that there is a, a very sharp class dimension around this issue and particularly around the consequences of things like defunding Planned Parenthood. But that also speaks to just how important people think these kinds of services are. Yes. No, it's interesting. And I hadn't seen that particular statistic, but in a way it's not surprising because just like you said uh, a few minutes ago, Planned Parenthood has become so controversial and there's just so much... Leaving Washington, D.C., Planned Parenthood isn't controversial. It's actually where people go to for health care. And so I've always have felt like there's there this real divide among folks who are big consumers of news and follow all the, you know, they read the Washington Post and the New York Times and this and that. And, and the only thing that ever gets reported, of course, is anything controversial, not, hey, we're, you know, we're at a record low for teenage pregnancy. Let's talk about that. Average folks in America know very well the array of services Planned Parenthood provides, and they support that, and they go to Planned Parenthood voluntarily. I mean, that's the other thing I always want to say to Congress is it's not like two and a half million people were forced to go to Planned Parenthood. They actually voted with their feet. And so it just seems to me that if, if Congress can go to whatever health care provider they want to, women in America should have that same option. But, but if that's true, if, mm-hmm. if Planned Parenthood is that uncontroversial and is that popular, how is it that, that one of the two major political parties has been able to develop at this point, a highly, highly publicized position that it should be defunded. Well, I think it's actually it's one of the positions that really hurts them, and I I don't think it's I think it's not smart, and I think they frankly, I wish more re- members of the Republican Party had a voice within the party system and certainly within the primary system. You know, we saw in a, in a year in which uh, you know this last presidential election is probably the best recent example we have, where. Women's health issues were not part of really the the main conversation, but in the areas that they were, candidates won that supported funding for Planned Parenthood in, in the New Hampshire Senate race and the Nevada Senate race. And if you look at who was spending money on television ads related to reproductive health care, it was all people who supported it. <laughs> and so, again, you had Kelly Ayotte, who had voted to defund Planned Parenthood several times, defeated by Maggie Hassan, who proudly ran ads saying, I support this health care. I mean, we're a big health care provider in New Hampshire. Same in Nevada with Catherine Cortez Masto. So I actually don't think that it's it, it may be something that has happened within the Republican primary system and the Republican leadership. But I think it is completely out of step with where the American people are. And I think they should listen to their constituents more. I want to move to the policy on this in, mm-hmm. in one second. But, but before we do, when, when people come up to you and they say, listen, I am pro-life. I think abortion is murder. I think this is wrong. What do you say to them? Is it, what, what is your sort of argument that this is – that even if you feel that way, that the work you're doing is valid and valuable 
and that it that it should be continued? Well, first of all, people really never do that. And this is actually it's funny because people sometimes say, huh. oh, my God, you must get stopped all the time. And I do. I get stopped every single day in airports or on the subway or by someone says, aren't you that lady from Planned Parenthood? I just want to tell you that's where I went to for birth control or they they detected my sister's breast cancer. They all want to tell a story. So I just want to kind of put the record straight that it's I can think of maybe one or two instances where someone actually came up to me and said something like that. But again, I, I say exactly what I would say to anybody, which is these are complicated issues. And these are really issues that women have to be able to decide with their doctors. And I totally respect everybody's own personal position, values, decision making. But we have to trust women to make their own decisions about their pregnancy. And maybe because I work at Planned Parenthood, I've read and heard so many stories about women's pregnancies and the decisions that they made and the importance of them being able to make a decision about a pregnancy, sometimes a really tough decision. I mean, obviously, a lot of women, even more so now, I believe, women with very complicated pregnancies, sometimes it didn't go well. And the thought, and this is why they write to us, the thought that they would have not been able to make the, the best decision for themselves and their families, but instead it would have been made by a politician, is unthinkable. I really do believe, Ezra, you know, we haven't talked about the marches, but the outpouring of folks marching, and I know that wasn't a march all about reproductive rights, but it was a big part of it, and a big part of it was Planned Parenthood. We saw the signs everywhere. The interesting thing to me was um, that it wasn't just women marching for women, but it was fathers marching with their daughters and grandfathers marching with their granddaughters. Because I do believe in this country, this is a value that transcends party, I believe, transcends geography, income, and everything, which is increasingly, I believe, men want their daughters to have every opportunity as their sons. And they fundamentally know that they can't unless they can control their reproductive destiny. And that, to me, is a sea change in this country. Now, as we know, Congress is usually the last to figure it out. But I really have been so encouraged to see that this is no longer perhaps going to be a women's issue. I was extraordinarily struck during the presidential debates by Hillary Clinton's answer on abortion. Mm -hmm. It felt to me like a, a genuine sharp break with the answers that had preceded that, even in the Democratic Party. It was a very, Absolutely. it was a defense of women's reproductive rights, not a, hey, safe, legal, Talking and rare. Point. Exactly. And, and it made me wonder, do you think that the politics of this issue are different in this country because politics itself, Congress itself, is so dominated by men? Oh, <laughs> do I? <laughs> Sorry. I guess we're not supposed to laugh on a podcast. You I, can laugh on a podcast. No, I just, <laughs> like I tell you, I keep saying, like, if more members of Congress could get pregnant, we would not be having these conversations. And I mean, I was so struck when I went, you may remember, I had to go before a congressional committee about a year ago or a couple of years ago. I can't even remember now. But it was so striking in that hearing because the Democrats were sitting on one side, the Republicans sit on one, the other side. I guess that's how it goes. And the Republicans were all men and maybe with one exception. And frankly, they were all Anglo men. And the Democratic Party, again, just because that's who represents who's in their caucus, it was the most it was the most diverse group of people. And. Again, I don't think that these values are held in a partisan sense. I mean, I think that the support for women, women's health is something that transcends every every party. But I just do believe in Congress we are completely lopsided 
for a whole host of reasons. But gender is absolutely, absolutely one of them. Are there big differences? I've seen different arguments around this in the polling between men and women on these issues. Not so much. I mean, the fascinating thing is, I mean, this is what they used to always say when I first started was men are just as supportive of reproductive health and rights as women. They just don't vote on that issue. That's actually changing. And we have seen that. And again, I wish I could give you some like awesome new data that I could just release on this podcast, but I don't have it. But I have seen one in voting behavior that more and more men are voting on these issues in support of these issues. And again, we're seeing more young men join Planned Parenthood as activists, become peer educators in their schools, on and on and on. And also, I will say in Congress, I remember when I first started, you know, the big champions in the United States Senate were Barbara Boxer and Dianne Feinstein and uh, Debbie Stabenow. And now some of the most incredibly awesome, fierce champions for women's health in the United States Senate are Al Franken and, you know, Dick Blumenthal. And you just go down the list. That to me is a big change. It's no longer like, okay, this is just a women's issue. So we'll just let the women folk take care of it. So I have a lot of conversations with people about Obamacare. And, I know. And I saw you interview the president. You did a great job. <laughs> Thank you. And one thing that will often come up when folks are talking about what raises prices within Obamacare is the idea that why should a 35-year-old man have to buy insurance that covers birth control and maternal health care? And I've always been personally so just blown away by that. Right. Because I'm a man. I... I it seems very obvious to me why that cost should be spread out among men too. We have a role. Right. We have a role in all that, and we we, we benefit from it. Yep. But that is really, to a striking degree, not been part of the discourse. Mm-hmm. That these are. I mean, these are literally. You will see them coded on political issue websites as women's issues. It's crazy. I know, and it makes me completely nuts as well. And. I actually, I remember doing focus groups in Ohio with men on the issue of birth control. And they just, they were like, it should be free. Why does my girlfriend have to pay for it? I, I think men actually, they do get this issue. Of course, I'm sure you're referring to, I remember the great Senate debate with Senator Sabanow and Senator Kyle when he said, well, I don't think that we should have to cover maternity benefits because I'm ne- going to never need them. And she came right back and said, well, I bet your mother did, which is really to illustrate your point. Is it? One of the few your mama uh, oh, replies in the U.S. Senate that has really, that was has really just, worked. <laughs> and, but this, the incredible thing is, are we going to have to do this again? I mean, this is just unbelievable. You know, the interesting thing that I have never really understood, Ezra, maybe you can figure this one out, is for business, it's such an important thing for insurance to cover family planning, maternity care. Mm-hmm. I mean, women are half the workforce, like Newsflash. We're half the college students. We're more than half the law students now. I mean, this is, we're here to stay. And it's true. We reproduce. That is the one big healthcare difference. But making sure that women have the ability to get family planning, to get cancer screening, so that, in fact, you can detect cancer early and do prevention. I mean, when there's actually a chance of making a difference. And when you can pay for maternity benefits, it's incredible to me that we're still having this fight. Well, it's funny because within employer, I look a lot at the differences between employer-based healthcare mm-hmm. and, and individual market healthcare. And something employer-based healthcare overwhelmingly has is maternal health coverage. I mean, right. just everybody has that. You don't really offer it without. And in the individual market, it has been recoded as a luxury. And I don't know that people really think it is, but it's a piece of the debate people fasten onto to say, hey, this doesn't this doesn't make sense. But but from the employer perspective, you really, really need people to be able to plan. You really need people to get good care because, I mean, if you're just talking about it absolutely cynically, 
you want to reduce the amount of time your your best workers are out. Right. Or allow them to plan for it. Mm -hmm. It is really insane. But look, there are those in Congress and, frankly, a new cabinet member who believe that women do not have any issue paying for birth control. That's unbelievable to me. And it is interesting when you use the social word, because I always said, like, you know, a lot of these politicians think that birth control is a social issue, and that's because they've never had to pay for it. I mean, this is a fundamental economic issue. I know the first year of the birth control benefit, when it went into effect, women saved $1.4 billion on birth control pills alone. Okay, so that's a big ticket item. And again, I think it has not only great health care benefits for women, it begins to get equity in the uh, in the healthcare environment, but it also is good for the economy. It's just it's good for business. So I think that's a good segue okay. into into the political fight here. When people talk about defunding Planned Parenthood, I think it's worth beginning with how is Planned Parenthood funded? Great. Yes. So how is Planned Parenthood funded and, and in specifically what percentage of that funding comes from the federal government? Okay. So we're a nonprofit healthcare provider, of, as I said, of about two and a half million folks every year and with a wide array of services. And you know, we get reimbursed by the federal government. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. For some services, we get some people come with us, come to us that have their own private health insurance. Other women or men may come and be self-pay patients. So it's a little bit all across the board. And then we raise money, private donations to help pay for uncompensated care because we see, you know, I guess 76% of our patients live at 150% of poverty or below. So we, we serve a lot of folks who... And, and a lot of those folks, we're their only doctor. We're the only clinical visit they'll have. In defunding, I think it's important to unpack this because we're not in the federal budget, okay? There is no funding for Planned Parenthood written in the federal budget that you can just defund. In fact, we operate just like other healthcare providers that participate in Medicaid and other federal programs. We get reimbursed for birth control, cancer screenings, STI testing and treatment, well woman visits. So it's not really what Speaker Ryan is talking about doing and other politicians who are trying to put this forward is simply saying to our patients, you, if you are on Medicaid, you cannot go to Planned Parenthood with your insurance card. We see a lot of Medicaid patients. So I, I know. I mean, about like 1.6 million. This is me being redundant, but I really okay. want to make sure this point is, is clear because sure. I think healthcare funding is very, it's an opaque subject. Yes. So. What is being said here is that the, the the way Planned Parenthood gets funding from the federal government is somebody on Medicaid goes in and gets a service the federal government can cover, which is not Correct. in these cases abortion. Correct. So they get a well woman visit, they get birth control, they get what a cancer screening, right. and then Planned Parenthood bills to the federal government for the service provided. The federal government pays whatever it is Medicaid pays for that service, Correct. and that's the end of the chain. Oh, correct. Yeah, you did a much better job. That's no, 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 that was, I just... no, that's exactly right. We are reimbursed just like if you went to a hospital and you got services that were that were paid for by the federal government, we get reimbursed. And so that that is exactly that is exactly it. And so the reason I think it, it's so important to be precise on this in a way the media politicians a lot of us typically aren't right is that as I understand it, then defunding it really, really means more than it means that you couldn't go in and get an abortion services because what you're saying is that Medicaid and Affordable Care Act insurance and things like that, they can't bill. Mm -hmm. So you can't go in and get those specific procedures, right? You cannot go in and get the procedures you can currently get on Medicaid, which is not abortions, all the other stuff. Right. Yes. Basically, what they're saying is 
now, if you are a woman in, so I'll just say an example, a woman yeah. I just met in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who comes to us for family planning, she can no longer come to us for that. Is that what you're, is that the, is that the point you're making? Yeah, that I, I think what people, what's happening in people's head here, and I'm not being at all articulate here, but what's happening in people's head is that after defunding, people right. who could previously go to Planned Parenthood yeah. and bill the government for an abortion can't do that anymore. But they can't do that now. That's right. So that's, that's the only right. thing that changes mythology. is they also can't go and bill for birth control or bill for a that's cancer right. screening. That's right. They can't take their Medicaid card and go to Planned Parenthood for any of those services. Ironically, of course, services for birth control, which, you know, prevent unintended pregnancy. So that's that's exactly right. You know, you asked a question earlier, too, and I feel like it's I don't want to overcomplicate this. But when you say, well, you know, some folks say, well, if you just didn't provide abortion services, I, I think it's really important to remember the same folks who are trying to keep us from providing Medicaid services for family planning and cancer screenings, they also are voting to end the National Family Planning Program. So it isn't just about abortion. These are folks who actually don't believe that birth control access uh, should be available to millions of women. The family planning program has been around forever. It was a bipartisan program signed into law by President Richard Nixon. So it is a very slippery slope, and it's not – it is about reproductive health care access writ large. That's really frightening. And again, to your point, maybe just to put a finer point on this, the question of who's impacted, it's women who have the least access to health care. And I have seen this in Texas already when you know the legislature and the governor, Governor Rick Perry, ended the women's health program in Texas because they wanted to somehow shut down Planned Parenthood. Well, we didn't shut down, but dozens of women's health centers – closed because they lost that uh, that ability. Then, of course, we've seen now more women in Texas with less access to birth control. They've kicked us out of the HIV AIDS screening program and breast cancer screening program. So the impact is huge. And now we are seeing the most recent reports in Texas, a doubling of the maternal mortality rate in the state of Texas, impacting low-income women and women of color the most. So the argument that Republicans make here is mm -hmm. that money is fungible, Money gets moved around from one thing to another, that, that the money coming into Planned Parenthood through cancer screenings, through birth control, is in some overall way going towards the Planned Parenthood budget. And that budget is what allows the centers to stay open and provide services that end up including abortion. That, that this idea that you can draw this line between them is a, is a governmental fiction. Well, I mean, we operate like, again, I think two things. One is anyone who provides care to Medicaid patients knows that there is... There's no excess there. There's no excess. In fact, a lot of folks have to raise money to supplement the very low rates of paying for preventive care through, through Medicaid. The second is we follow all the same rules as hospitals do. We operate just the same way. So I have no idea, I cannot understand why it's different for Planned Parenthood than it is for any hospital in America. And I would say, given the political environment, we are scrutinized constantly and take this very, very seriously and happy to demonstrate to anyone um, how that's impossible and not true. My understanding is that if you lost this funding, a number of your clinics would close, correct? Well, I mean, we're trying to prevent that from mm -hmm. happening. We're trying to prevent that from happening. So, so explain to me how the argument is is not correct in, in a little bit more detail, because I think this is a place where, where the debate ends up centering, but there's not very good well, again, uh, discussion I, I, I mean, I, I'm happy to t talk about that, but I also would say, why is it a hospital that provides abortion services and family planning services and a lot of other things? They operate just the same way. So there's Planned Parenthood is no different than any others. But I'll give you a good example. So in uh, 
again, I'm just going to go back to keep going back to Wisconsin for the moment. But in Racine and Kenosha, all we see are family planning patients. And if those folks and mainly low income women and mainly women on Medicaid, we've been there for decades. And if we if we can't get reimbursed and women can't come to us anymore, we'll shut down. It has nothing to do with abortion. There's no abortions provided in those in those centers. So, and that's what happened in Texas, too. I mean, that's this. I mean, some of the irony of this is that. They wanted to shut down Planned Parenthood, but what they did, in fact, is shut down health centers all across the Rio Grande border and, you know, rural areas of Texas where family planning centers couldn't make it anymore because they couldn't they couldn't see the patients that have been relying on them for years. So when you talk to Republican legislators and, and mm-hmm. you make this argument to them, what do they say back to you? <laughs> I mean, I wish more of them would like to have the conversation. I just don't think they have a good they don't have a good answer. I would argue a lot of folks, even including people in Congress, have no idea how healthcare works. I mean, I spent a cool six hours before one of those congressional committees trying to explain how women's health works and how Planned Parenthood is funded and how other reproductive health care providers are funded. I actually didn't find that there was – maybe going back to your original question, which is what makes a good organizer is a good listener. I mean, I really found, found that people were so wrapped up in their political rhetoric, they had no interest. It seems to me that Planned Parenthood has come to stand in for, it has become a symbol of accessible abortion rights in America, right? It is a place that provides a lot of the the abortions people can get in the case that they need them. And so the Republican strategy for, in theory, cutting abortions, as you say, there are ways it could end up increasing them, is simply to try to destroy the overall institution. And if the avenue through which they can do that is not actually the abortion funding avenue, then that's okay. The reason that the counter argument here doesn't work for them is that they just think the organization at this point should not exist. I think they basically don't think abortion should be safe and legal in this country. And the first place to go is to shut down Planned Parenthood. But that isn't the end of it. I mean, we're really talking fundamentally about whether we believe in this country that people should have access to reproductive health care, whether Planned Parenthood or other, and whether we place a value on public health care systems. It doesn't seem that these strategies would end up making abortion impossible. It would make them impossible for poor women in rural areas. Correct. That if you're wealthy and you live in New York or you live in LA, it's going to be okay. There, are, As you say, there are hospitals, there, there are other avenues that you can go down even if there wasn't a Planned Parenthood. But this seems to be a a, a policy set that would really reduce accessibility to a suite of family planning services, including abortion, but only among a certain subcategory, uh, only only among certain demographics. There's a a different kind of cruelty to that to me. Oh, absolutely. It's one thing to make the argument that like, it's one thing to just make it, try to make it illegal and see if you can win that fight. But it's another thing to just reduce access for those who don't have another option. Well, I mean, that was true, obviously, Ezra, before Roe was decided. Mm -hmm. So anyone who thinks that somehow making abortion illegal means it won't happen anymore doesn't know their history. You know, abortion was around. It was just unsafe and women routinely young, healthy women died in emergency rooms. You can still meet doctors who remember doing their residency and seeing septic abortions in emergency rooms across this this country. But wealthy women, in large part, yes, could fly to Europe. All of these cuts, whether it's 
ending, you know, Medicaid expansion, whether it is ending access to to Planned Parenthood, whether it is overturning the Affordable Care Act and insurance, the impact is going to be on people who have the least access to care already. And look, this is where there I was feeling being so proud about the the reduction in teenage pregnancy or the reduction in unintended pregnancy. The truth is that isn't evenly felt in this country either. And if we didn't have to deal with all the politics in Congress right now, we would be doubling down on expanding access to family planning services and sex education services for young women in this country who do not get it now. That is what's really frustrating as you look at the public health care system and how many women are disadvantaged. I mean, I know there was a you know recent st- study, too, on the challenges of maternal mortality rates in a lot of areas of the country where women just don't even have access to an OBGYN or a labor and delivery provider. It's really frustrating to think that these kind of cynical moves that are being made by people in Congress, mainly men, mainly politicians, they will never feel the brunt of it. But other women all across this country will. You can imagine in a lot of places in our politics how you could be having a very different conversation that in theory would serve everyone's goals better. And and sometimes I, I try to think about things from that perspective to just test whether we're having the conversation we think we're having. Because it does seem to me that if the ultimate goal was reducing unplanned pregnancy and reducing the the number of abortions, that the energy going into this fight, which has been a lot, would probably be better served going into other approaches to reducing pregnancy. It would probably be easier for everyone. And the fact that there does not really seem to be any interest in that road I think it goes to what you were saying that perhaps there's not as much consensus as people believe there is on basics of family planning in this country because that doesn't there doesn't seem to be the interest in that as a way for everybody to just get together and reduce the overall number of abortions as some of the rhetoric might make you think. I think there's enormous consensus in this country around certainly around family planning. I mean, more than 90% of women use family planning at some point in their lifetime. In fact, the average woman spends 30 years trying not to get pregnant. So just do that factor by, you know, 60 million or something. It's a lot of a lot of healthcare. There is growing consensus even around abortion access and making it legal. In fact, I think that it's the highest rate of support for Roe that we've seen. And I, I think in my lifetime, it's now 70% of voters. And I think partly out of this election that there's just a growing sense that actually this is a real something really at risk. And there's enormous support for, for Planned Parenthood across the country. Again, millions of people come to us. Many women at some point in their lifetime have come to us. I just think women have been, are being used as a political foil to sort of appease or engage the furthest right of the Republican Party. And look, I just don't think it's that's not where Republicans are in general. In fact, Planned Parenthood was started by Republicans all across this country. And it's very discouraging to see how hyperpartisan people have made women's reproductive health care because that is not how women experience it. Putting aside the current debate, what would if you were queen <laughs> and the question is simply, let's drive unplanned pregnancies down as low as it can go. What would be the top three or four items on your agenda? Absolutely. Double down on the birth control access that we already started or, I mean, we collectively under the Affordable Care Act. That has been the single biggest change in women being able to get birth control that works for them, not just what's cheapest, because birth control pills are the least expensive, but they're also not the most effective. The second is get serious about sex education in this country. It is a crime to me that we have made this a political issue. 
you know, my home state of Texas, where abstinence only is the somehow official policy. And that just doesn't work. And we know, in fact, that when young people have information about sex, about prevention, about STIs, they actually delay becoming sexually active. And when they do become sexually active, they're more likely to use contraception. So they're just basic stuff that we could do. And then I think we have to quit talking about birth control, abortion, sexual and reproductive health care is a side item. It is a basic part of healthcare in America. And I am excited to see that I feel like there's a whole new generation of young people who refuse to be stigmatized and shamed about it. It's encouraging to see, I think, women's magazines and others now begin to cover these issues in a realistic, honest way. And then, of course, the best thing we could do is just take it out of the political arena and get, and just get back to what does this country want to see? And that is, I think, folks having access to care that keeps them healthy, allows them to finish school, get a job, have a career, and support a family when they're ready to have one. Where do you think the the debate in Congress goes next? And, and specifically, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about what this attaches to, right? There's talk that yes. maybe it'll be in the budget, maybe it'll be in Obamacare, maybe it'll be in um, something else. What is your expectation? on this right now? What what fight specifically are you gearing up for? Well, what Speaker Ryan has said or said back in January was that he was going to attach this to the repeal of the Affordable Care Act in what's called the reconciliation package. And uh, we are trying everything we can to uh, keep that from happening and talk about why that's not a good idea. But, you know, he's in charge and he doesn't seem to have been very receptive to uh, those entreaties. So that's I guess the most likely thing, obviously, the whole repeal of the Affordable Care Act has run into some um, hurdles that they probably weren't expecting. So we'll see. But the reason they want to do that, Ezra, is because they only need 51 votes in the United States Senate. And they, I don't believe, have 60 votes. So they're trying to get it put on something that just can go through. Again, it's wildly unpopular. And we've seen massive outpourings of people in districts all across this country, especially during the congressional recess, saying, do not take away my health care access, either through the Affordable Care Act or at Planned Parenthood. Are there 51 votes in the U.S. Senate for defunding Planned Parenthood? Well, I don't know that there are. I mean, it's sort of, but when you get stuck on a must-pass bill, of course, that's the, that's the trick. And I think that's why it's hard to stop something that is budget-related and has to pass. So we'll see. Obviously, we're spending every day working with senators on the Hill, Democrats and Republicans, to try and prevent this from happening. Because I can tell you, it would create total chaos among women in this country. It's interesting because I wonder if it doesn't go the other way a little bit in terms of have to pass bills. It seems to me that putting this in something that already may not pass, because it doesn't look to me like their Obamacare appeal bills have 51 votes in the Senate. I sometimes wonder if the Republicans aren't just putting together a big package in the House that they know can't pass the Senate. Because then at least they tried. <laughs> then could, they tried could, and it's not their fault. Could be. I can't even begin to uh, understand what the what the logic is over there. I'm really just focused on what the impact will be on women in this country and making sure that every senator knows that would ever vote to pass a bill that blocked access to Planned Parenthood. Again, didn't defund us because we're not in the budget, but blocked access to Planned Parenthood, what the impact would be back in their home state. Yeah, if two things pass, if they did repeal Obamacare, including the, the birth control side of it, the mandate, mm -hmm. and they did block the federal government from reimbursing Planned Parenthood for services, what would women's health care look like in America two years from now? What would be different about it? Well, again, so it's hard to exactly predict, but I know that 
the women we've talked about earlier would lose access immediately, because I think most of these things would go into effect immediately. So there would be millions of women who would no longer have access to those benefits and that care. Again, what we saw in Texas was dozens of women's health centers shut down. They were health centers that were providing, like on the Rio Grande border, places where women didn't have access to care. And it's very hard to rebuild that. Very hard to rebuild that. Like we're just reopening in, in East Texas. And that's been, I don't know how many years. And so then you think about, well, what's the what's going to be the impact of the for these women over a number of years before people are able to sort of reorganize and find some other way of providing that access to care? And one of the other things, Ezra, you haven't asked about, but is really important probably to raise, because Speaker Ryan has said, well, if women can't go to Planned Parenthood, they can just go to their local community health center or they can go to some other public health care provider. And the public health community care community has been absolutely uniform and adamant that they cannot pick up the two and a half million patients that Planned Parenthood sees. And that, again, that was part of the reason I want to go to Speaker Ryan's district and see what was going on on the ground there. And in fact, uh, women will tell you they're often referred to Planned Parenthood. You know, if they're a local uh, public health care provider, you, you could call in a state, you know, look at states like Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan. Ohio, states where we have, you know, health centers in some of the smaller areas, often women will tell me, I called, I had a lump in my breast, I called to try to get an exam, they said, we can't see you for a month, why don't you try Planned Parenthood? Uh, and that is, that is what we do. And we had about 150 patients and healthcare providers from Planned Parenthood come to Congress last week. And this story after story after story of women who literally their lives were saved, because they were able to go to Planned Parenthood. So it is incalculable the impact, but I can guarantee you there is nobody ready to pick up the slack. And what would Planned Parenthood do in the aftermath of that, which is to say that you would no longer be getting this kind of reimbursement? Are there options for your funding to change? Are there places you can make it up? I mean, what are what what are the plan Bs? Well, I mean, we're doing everything we can to sort that out right now. And, you know, we've had some some governors who very sympathetic. In fact, I think Charlie Baker just last week in Massachusetts saying he would work with us to to try to figure this out. But it would be it would be chaos. Not, you know, there's just no way around that. And the hard thing is just so many women already don't know how to get health care. And so then you shut down the one provider that they were going to. And does that mean that they don't go get their pap smear or they don't get their breast checked out because they don't know where to go or they put off getting birth control because honestly they can't drive 50 miles to Milwaukee. I look at the proposals that are moving around in Congress on healthcare broadly. Mm -hmm. If some of these things passed, and you can imagine them ranging from the sort of Collins-Cassidy bill where states can decide to either keep Obamacare really as is, have a very sort of conservative healthcare plan or have nothing at all, to just broader things like the um, like some of the Republican replacement bills that Ryan has floated, et cetera. You can really imagine a very two-tiered healthcare system emerging in this country yeah. where blue states continue to have a fair amount of this sort of near universal infrastructure. They have Planned Parenthoods. They have all of these different ways that people who are lower income can get healthcare and that a lot of these red states really don't. And I don't know where that puts you. And obviously, to some degree, particularly in reproductive care, you already have that a little bit with places like Texas. Right. 
but I'm, I'm curious how you think about a world like that, how you think about a world where there's really one healthcare system that operates in more liberal states and a whole other that operates in more conservative ones. Right, which is just crazy, right? Because healthcare should be a right. It shouldn't be a privilege and it shouldn't depend on what you know, what uh, the party preferences of your of your state. Look, we already see this. One of the things we did at Planned Parenthood over the last five years is invest a, t- a lot of money, millions of dollars in the Deep South, in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Texas, because these are places where the healthcare outcomes are just outrageous for women. I mean, higher rates of unintended pregnancy, higher rates of abortion, higher rates of teenage pregnancy, higher rates of HIV infection. So we already have in my opinion, a two-tier system in this country. And our, you know, our motto at Planned Parenthood is care no matter what. That means no matter your income or your immigration status or your ethnicity or whatever. And we have a lot to do in this country to actually make up for the disparity of healthcare. And I would say, I just can't say it enough, particularly for women of color, you just look at the healthcare obstacles they face in terms of access. And it's ironic, you know, because folks say, well, it's one thing you can get a Medicaid card, but if there's nobody to see you for two months, it's not worth a whole lot. And that is literally what women face in, uh, in this country. So I can absolutely see not a developing two state or, you know, good states and not good state system, we already have that. And my fear, perhaps like yours, is that it's going to go even further that way. This whole thing of states' rights is, to me, just is crazy. Public health, and this is, I guess, the other worry that I have is, you know, we're a public health care provider and have been for 100 years. We cannot abandon public health as a public good in America. And that, some of the conversations I hear in Congress sound like people are ready pretty much to throw public health overboard. Let me ask you about the Supreme Court uh, fight that's coming quickly. To my knowledge, Neil Gorsuch, who's Donald Trump's nominee, has not said very much that is specifically on on abortion or on Roe in the past. What is your sense of where he stands and and what is the the evidence for that stance? Well, obviously, he has very troubling opinions on the issue of birth control access. So it's almost like even the first tier, what you think of as a simpler issue, has been incredibly dismissive of women's rights to access birth control and family planning through the Hobby Lobby decision. So that's a really bad sign. What specifically are some of the opinions there that... that you guys are concerned about? Well, when he, I mean, he sided with Utah legislator who wanted to ban women from coming to Planned Parenthood. That was number one, right? He sided on the Hobby Lobby decision, believed that it should be expansive. And essentially, as for folks who don't remember Hobby Lobby, this was the Supreme Court decision that basically said, your boss can decide whether or not you should be on birth control or be able to provide birth control. Again, um, I think a, a terrible travesty, a miscarriage of justice. We cannot have any more judges on that court who believe that they uh, or employers should be making these kind of personal decisions. And I think there are going to be further efforts to restrict birth control access. I believe that's going to happen in HHS. Uh, we have to have a court that stands squarely on the side of women's rights to access health care, not only Roe, not only safe and legal abortion, but access uh, to birth control as well. Do you think that if he were on the court, given its current composition, because he's replacing Scalia, who's certainly no fan of Roe, in this context, do you think Roe is w- would be safe, assuming no other changes? Well, I um, I would hope so, but as we see, you know, there have been hundreds of bills 
introduced and many passed and signed at the local level, I think there will be a challenge to Roe sometime soon. And I certainly hope that we don't have any further changes on the Supreme Court if if Justice Gorsuch is uh, is confirmed. But there's going to be a big fight over his confirmation. And again, I think this is an issue that we're seeing stronger support for for Roe, stronger support for legal access to abortion than we ever have. And again, I think these hearings are going to be really important. So, uh, Cecile Richards, I appreciate you being here on what's a very busy week. I want to ask you the question we use to, to end the podcast, which is, what are a couple books you would recommend that, that have influenced you, that you love, that people should read? Oh, my God. Okay. You should have given me some warnings. So, I should have. Yeah. Let's see. Okay. I'll say Mountains Beyond Mountains. By Tracy Kidder. One of my favorite books. Yeah, that's uh, a fantastic book. I've probably given that to about a million people. And oh my God, there's just, I mean, there's so many that, that are running through my head. I'll tell you one that's not like maybe influenced me, but is like one of my favorite books I re- recently read was um, Barbarian Days. What's that about? It's about surfing, but of course, that's a metaphor for something else. It's by William Finnegan. Actually won the Pulitzer last year. It's really good. And it's about the world. So, but maybe not, not how to change the world, but how to live in the world. Cecile Richards, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Ezra. Thank you to Cecile Richards. Uh, thank you to my producer, AC Valdez, and to all of you for tuning in. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com panoply production, and we will be back shortly.